Welcome to the Select Star Podcast, your resource for innovative technology, developer topics, and more. Here's your host, Margo McCabe from the HarperDB team. Welcome to Select Star, your resource for innovative tech and developer topics. On today's episode from back in 2018, Stephen Goldberg, HarperDB co-founder and CEO, interviews Kirk Bourne, the principal data scientist at Booz Allen, about everything from astrophysics and windmills to 4D printing and autonomous lawnmowers, in their conversation to ultimately explain Digital Twin. Check it out and let us know your thoughts. Do you mind giving a, a just a quick sort of intro to who you are and your background and some of the things you've done? Okay, uh, how quick would you like that? <laughs> uh, whatever you're comfortable sharing. Okay, so uh, I'm Kirk Bourne. Uh, my background is astrophysics. Uh, at a very young age, uh, I decided I wanted to do something in science because I just loved exploration and discovery, and astrophysics was the thing that caught my attention. And all my years in astrophysics, I was doing work with data. So I was either analyzing data from experimental observations of, of the universe or creating my own data by running numerical simulations and computer models of things in the universe, for example, colliding galaxies. So so when you run these numerical simulations, they generate lots of data, which it needs to be analyzed. So those were, I would, I would joke with people that was my night job, <laughs> my day job. I worked at NASA for 20 years uh, managing data systems for NASA's astronomy satellites. So I was always working around data, both in terms of my service work that paid the salary and my, my vocation as an astronomer doing research. All those years of doing that led me to see greater value in data beyond just the astrophysics, but everywhere in the world, data sets and data volumes were growing enormously. And about 20 years ago, I sort of caught the bug of machine learning. I started discovering these amazing techniques and algorithms for finding interesting patterns and trends and behaviors in data, especially large data sets. And uh, I guess from my birth as a data scientist <laughs> came about 20 years ago. Uh, about you know 15 years into my NASA career, so that did that for a few more years. Then left NASA to teach this stuff at George Mason University. So I was actually a professor of astrophysics for 12 years at the university after my 20 years at NASA. And uh, and even though I was professor of astrophysics, I never taught astrophysics courses. I taught data science because my passion was to train the next generation in the tools and techniques of discovery from data. So it's always been about discovery from data. And then about three years ago, uh, this company, Booz Allen Hamilton, uh, came along and offered me a position I couldn't refuse. And so I uprooted myself from a tenured full professorship, and I am now the principal data scientist at Booz Allen Hamilton, which basically means I get to be the horizontally matrix guy. I can talk to anyone in any client space or vertical market or area where the company is doing analytics, advise people, advise clients consult with clients, uh, mentor the young data scientists, uh, just go out and give public talks on this stuff, and also be very active on social media, where some of you probably have seen me, and if not, I encourage you to check it out, because on that uh, on my Twitter platform, I, I tell people that's my micro-education platform, where I continue to educate the world about these things that I love. That's awesome, and uh, I, I definitely am an avid follower. Uh, I would say uh, you were my, my favorite follow, so... 
Um, I, I would encourage anyone who's listening to this to follow as well. It's probably the most informative Twitter feed if you're interested in machine learning, IoT, data science, a- any of the things we're going to talk about today. Um, that sounds like a pretty cool job, um, getting to go across all the different verticals, looking at those problems, and um, that is certainly, I think, m- many people's dream job, so that's awesome. Um, today we were going to talk a little bit about Digital Twin, um, and obviously Digital Twin has an IoT component, it has a, a machine learning component, but for those folks who might not be familiar with Digital Twin, would you mind sort of a, a giving your uh, definition of that, which I, I think would be really valuable with your, your pure science background as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so first of all, a digital twin is not necessarily a twin of yourself, though sometimes people immediately jump to the conclusion it's, it's like my virtual self or something like this. Uh, it could be that, but that's not really what it's about. It's really uh, a, a, intended to be a virtual replica of a physical system. So the virtual replica uh, normally is a physics-based model which has all the characteristics, behaviors, uh, responses, etc. That, that a real physical system would have. And then and when you actually build the physical system and put sensors on it and collect data from the real system, you can sort of mirror that in the virtual system, which is the digital twin. So whenever there's a failure mode or anticipated failure mode or a prediction of something going to happen, you can sort of play it through the digital virtual twin of the actual physical system uh, to either forewarn yourself and take appropriate action to to prevent that, that outcome you may not want. Or if something does happen, you can actually replay the data, even from, you know, take the actual sensor data from the physical system and play it through your virtual system, the digital twin, play it forward and backward and as many times and many different angles as you wish to see if you can do a root cause analysis and understand what's going on. So it's used during the design phase of physical systems as well as in the operational phase and the preventive maintenance phase and so forth. And so there's examples of this from the very early days at NASA. I wouldn't say necessarily that the Apollo 13 mission, uh, which was the, the successful failure, if you, if you know the story, of course, that the, the mission failed, but they got the astronauts back, so actually the mission was successful because that was the mission, getting these people safely back home. They just never made it to the moon. But they had to sort of, they basically had mirrored systems on Earth that sort of replicated what was out there in space, so they're able to figure out what to do in order to get that crippled spacecraft back to Earth. But now we see digital twins uh, in uh, like wind farms, uh, so digital replicas of a wind uh, generator, wind power generator. We see it in sort of nuclear power plants, nuclear submarines. Uh, we see it in entire, entire manufacturing plants have a digital twin. Or it could be something as, as small as maybe a, a uh, you know some kind of medical device that's implanted in your heart, for example. And so there's a digital twin of that that sort of replicates what it's doing in your heart and, and see what, if we can you know, understand it with a digital replica of your heart with the same device virtually embedded in that virtual heart. So, so the scale can be anything, but the idea that it combines the numerical simulation, computer modeling on one side with the analytics and data collection and data understanding on the other side, that is you know, putting the two things together to, to achieve better outcomes from whatever physical system you're dealing with 
And more often than not, it is usually a pretty significantly large digital, I mean, physical system, you know, like a spacecraft or a, or a nuclear submarine or a, or a wind farm out in the ocean, for example. So I know that some of the European countries have, have, have been working with some of the, of the uh, wind energy companies in their, in their part of the world, uh, where they have these huge farms of, of windmills out in the North Sea, for example, and they have digital twin technology to basically service them and understand them and, and you know predict when maintenance is needed without actually having to go out into the tossing seas and freezing ocean every time they need to check something. That's a that's a really interesting history of it. I like that you took it back to the uh, NASA missions. I, I had never really thought of that. I've, I you know I've thought of it for other things, and I know the concept has been around for even longer than that. Um, I think it was Einstein who came up with it originally. Isn't that right? I don't even yeah. know. So uh, you're informing me. Yeah. So thank you. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I think he's the one who coined that phrase. But I might be making it up. I'll look at it, at it afterwards. I probably should have uh, thought. Google that quickly before this. Um, but but that said, um, you covered a, a lot of the things I was going to ask you, but um, that's awesome. And then one of, one of the questions I had was, you know, you touched on the verticals and you touched on a lot of them, and there are definitely different verticals that are experiencing this, but which ones do you think it's going to cause the most disruption? Because while the concept's been around for a while, technology we have today is obviously making it much easier to perform these things. So, so which verticals, in your opinion, do you think will undergo the most disruption due to digital twin? That's yeah, that's a good question because <laughs> there's so much disruption everywhere. Sometimes it's hard to say if you fall down hard or you fall down soft. You're still falling down. <laughs> so, yeah. I'm not really sure how to measure that, but, but I do think certainly in the digital manufacturing space, this is really huge in the sense that uh, because uh, the connection to IoT here or the industrial IoT, where there's, again, there's sensors on all devices, and so those devices in a manufacturing plant can can signal uh, sort of quality issues or, or, or anomalies or deviations in the manufacturing process. And so you can basically streamline the whole uh, quality assurance program within a, a significantly large manufacturing facility without too much human intervention because uh, it's, uh, again, the data is coming off the sensors, and if the data coming off the, the physical sensors don't correspond with what you expected when you look at the, the simulation of that uh, manufacturing system, you know, then you get an early warning signal, early warning alert, if you will, um, because there's a deviation that's taking place, and so intervention can be had to be taken. And sometimes that that intervention again is uh, uh, almost like a servo feedback. So again sort of minimizing how much human intervention is required, uh, you know, to further streamline that process. And so this, you know, so I think digital manufacturing as a whole is, is, is what they call industry 4.0, I guess, is, is, is extremely disruptive right now. Uh, certainly in the, in the power sector, I mean, when I, I've gone to a few sort of smart grid, uh, smart energy analytics type of conferences in the past year, uh, one of the fun things I get to do as an astrophysicist, I get to go to conferences on topics that I know nothing about. <laughs> but you can talk the you can talk the common language of analytics and data science and machine learning, no matter what the you know the actual um, vertical is, and that's that's the part I love about it that we can have these conversations because they transcend those specific disciplines. 
So in those in those conferences, I'm hearing a lot of talk about digital twin technology. Uh, the wind farm is one example. Uh, electric power grid is another example. Just you know, how do you, how do you basically model power grids? And there's lots of discussion about resilient power grids and how do you reconfigure one when a section of it goes down. And having a, a digital twin of the system to know how to reroute power when, say, some section of it goes down because of a storm or something. And because we are now you know, with smart meters able to have very high resolution both in time and space of where energy is flowing, unlike the old days where you basically had the meter reader come to your house once a month <laughs> and they had a, a monthly reading, all kinds of bad things can happen in those 30 days between that reading. But now they have like you know a few minute resolution everywhere, even within a single facility, a building. There's sort of power readings coming every 15 minutes or so from all the different pieces, places in a, in a building or a manufacturing plant or an assembly plant or whatever. And so you can start rerouting power, uh, but that that's sort of a, a scary proposition that you really know how it's going to impact the load uh, on the system, especially if it's. Uh, a load that's caused because of an adverse weather event and the loads are going to be changing because of that. So all kinds of predictive modeling goes into this. And the best way to play in that space is to have a virtual simulation of the real power grid. Say, what would happen if we did this? Oh, okay. What would happen if we did that? Oh, okay. And so before you get out there and start rerouting things, you you have a pretty good idea what the response of the system is going to be because you've built this high-fidelity physics-based model of the system. So there's so in the energy space, I think this is a, a really significant uh, disruptor because of the um, the way we're going to have to be more you know, careful in how we use energy, uh, partition energy across different you know places. Uh, you know, the, the, the energy days, you know, hot summer days, where we you change the way that people are able to use energy and the pricing changes to induce and nudge people to change the way they use energy. And all that can be modeled in advance to, to, to see if the, if the if particular actions are going to be beneficial. So those are just some examples. And again, we go on and on and on with yeah, healthcare sure. and all kinds. No, we, no, you know, remote sea, remote sea exploration, yeah. deep space exploration, nuclear submarines. It's just a, it's amazing. And, and because my background is both computational science with all those galaxy models I used to build and data science, to me, this is sort of like the, you know, the confluence of all the things that I've always loved happening in one place. For, for sure. And I, I think that if you look at IoT, you look at where data science is, you look at machine learning, um, you look at some of the things going on with connectivity and networks, some of the things going on with hardware, it is sort of the perfect time and space for digital twin to um, really come to life. I mean, it is an old concept, but now we can sort of do it in, like you said, in a more high resolution way where it has more value and I think that um, it that makes it really exciting and one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you about it today. But at the same time, there's also some challenges that we still have to face. Uh, are you seeing any that are specific in terms of the projects people are trying to tackle or any certain areas of their architectures or um, issues that are kind of common across industries? The one thing which uh, sort of surprised me when I had this conversation at this uh, Smart Electricity Grid workshop a couple of weeks ago was people were starting to talk about 5G. Yeah. So let me back up just a second, then I'll get back to the 5G story. But uh, just as you were just referring to, the, this sort of convergence 
of all these different technologies. And I, and I like to use the word confluence because they sort of blend together, just like rivers, a confluence of rivers where the two rivers merge and you have a stronger force because of that, you know, that blending of the two. And so if you think about cloud and edge computing, which is sort of almost opposites, but you need to have that blended in an IoT environment because sometimes you want to do the, the computation at the edge at the point of data collection. And then in other cases, you want to bring the data back from the sensors, for example, in that digital twin environment. You have to bring it back to the place where you're doing that virtual simulation to see if there is deviation from what you expect. So cloud and edge computing as well as sensor technology, machine learning, data science, all of those things, all, all that stuff is happening. And then you got this thing, this other thing, which is the communication piece, which is the 5G component. And I never really thought too much about 5G. I mean, I'm not a communications engineer, so, I mean, it just sort of, like, happens. <laughs> I don't think about it. But someone was saying that, basically, it, it, it's such a, uh, 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 I don't know what the right, right word is, the increasingly small uh, activity on, on, the, uh, on the transistor, on the electronic chip, where this, uh, all this sort of wireless communication stuff is happening. And so you get that higher bandwidth because you have much smaller you know, separation between the components on the transistor to allow you to have higher frequencies and, and, and more you know, sort of narrow bands so you can actually increase the number of channels in, in a band. And they're saying what's, what happens is that when you get things on, at that level is, is individual uh, cosmic ray events. So in astronomy, we're very familiar with this, where energetic particles from space, usually from the sun, um, hit electronic detectors and cause some kind of electronic discharge. Well, but normally we don't notice that on Earth-based systems, but we notice it all the time in astronomy because we're detecting very, very, very faint light sources in space, which with these electronic detectors, and if something, if there's a sudden electronic discharge on your detector, how do you know it's from one of these solar proton events or cosmic ray events or from space? Well, all of a sudden, this thing which I thought was only important in astronomy is now important in 5G because if you if you disrupt one of those micro transistors in that device, all of a sudden you're transmitting a different number, a different signal from your sensor to home base or vice versa, and it's like oh, <laughs> so when so so sort of the fidelity of of the of the data then has to be. Rethought. I mean, so, so when you think about uh, data transfer protocols, uh, there's always like all this sort of handshaking that goes on when you when you transfer data, which most people don't think about uh, the TCP/IP type of stuff, where you yeah. basically, you know, you send you send a packet, and then the receiver says, "Yes, I've received this packet," and there's some kind of a, a you know a byte check or a checksum or something that verifies that it got the right packet, and then you know it just goes back and forth. And in the big data world, we have these other data protocols, like I think UDP is one of these, where you send bigger chunks of data, so you're not checking every individual packet, so you're able to transfer more data. But all of a sudden, they're saying, okay, well, now we need to be really careful again at the fine grain level if something has been disturbed or because of this electronic impulse that happened on the chip at a very micro level because we're now you know, really moving the, the, the communication circuitry down to this microscopic level. And wow, I was just like hearing this conversation, and I said, "This is unbelievable." That <laughs> things that I, you know, I sort of worried over and fussed over my data for decades in astronomy when I had these you know, energetic signals 
particle signals in my data, which were not real data from space. It was just some discharge in the, in the sensor. Now if we had sent those discharges and sensors could actually impact things we're doing at a, at a human level as a, I mean, as opposed to outer space, you know, universe level. So it's, it's, I think that's a, in itself as a challenge because yeah, that's because really it, scary. I, I I didn't know we're, that. We're I mean, moving lots. Yeah, we're moving right. lots of data around. That's really the point. The point is we're moving lots of data around, and, and the integrity of that data must be assured when you're doing all that. I I didn't I I, I consider myself to know a little bit about IoT. Uh, and you know we're pretty heavily involved there, but I I I, I had no idea. That's pretty interesting to me. And and one of the other things you mentioned, I mean, that sort of you know, really impacts connectivity in a way and reliability. And then one of the other things you mentioned was around edge decision-making. And to me, you know, while I didn't know the 5G side of it, I do know that throughput can be an issue sometimes, that connectivity can be an issue sometimes. Um, and so one of the things we talk a lot about is, you know, edge decision-making and pushing your decision-making capability to the edge from the cloud, use the edge uh, for what it makes sense to do and use the hardware you already have um, for, you know, kind of to its full extent rather than just having a dumb edge that shoves stuff to the cloud. But I guess in that case, edge decision-making becomes even more important uh, when you could potentially have faulty data coming back to the cloud. Um, but I guess in, in your mind, where are some of the areas where you see edge decision-making as important? Because while we talk about it a lot, people don't, um, I think people are still learning about and trying to find those modalities and architectures and patterns of when to make decisions on, on the edge. What, what are you seeing as sort of valuable places where it makes sense to make those decisions? Yeah, a very good question. Uh, I, I do want to, uh, have a disclaimer that uh, my previous comments again I'm not a communications engineer, understood so certainly nothing in the way of knowledgeable too much about 5G so if yeah. I said something wrong and there's a 5G engineer out there saying Kirk you're saying all the wrong stuff then I please hope someone corrects me but so I, I don't want to overplay the, the no data. worries I, I don't know data. that much about network either so I think data. between the two yeah, of us I don't want to overplay yeah. the data integrity issue it's just surprised me that that was coming up in the conversation that's all but coming back to that edge thing, I mean, for years, I mean, one of the one of the things uh, when I was my last years at NASA, so I worked at NASA until about two thousand three, so that was fifteen years ago, and we were already uh, talking about uh, intelligent a concept called intelligent data understanding, and the, and the prototype idea, the concept, the or the or the, uh, the demo, if you will, was like the Mars rover. So the, the Mars rover rovers this little you know robot. Uh, Jeep sort of drives itself around Mars and it takes samples of the soil and it, it finds interesting things or uninteresting things and it makes decisions whether it's turn left, turn right, or stay where it is or, or go back or whatever. And so in a sense, that's sort of, that's an edge decision right there. At the point of data collection, decide, you know, is this a waste of time or do I keep doing what I'm doing? And, or is it really important? Should I send, you know, information back to, you know, to the human analyst right away or can I just sort of, you know, packet it up and send it later if it's just informational and not an alert. So all those kinds of things, we can think of use cases on Earth. That doesn't have, it doesn't have to be deep space. And so after I left NASA and started teaching at the university, I, I, I had taught a course to 
the, uh, on this on generally data science. It, the, the course was called Scientific Databases, which allowed me to basically include everything in the world: <laughs> data science, machine learning, databases, sensor technologies, bioinformatics, geoinformatics, health informatics. You name it. I, I crammed everything I could think of in this course. My graduate students were overwhelmed usually, <laughs> but one, I had a whole lecture on what in those days was called sensor networks or sensor webs. And the idea was that the smart dust, the, the sensor was basically, uh, had smarts in it. So it, so you would sense, so, so NASA had this idea of sprinkling smart dust in a forest, for example, which would measure the temperature of the forest floor and, and alert somebody if all of a sudden the temperature rose quickly, indicating there might be a fire in some remote part of the forest where there's no humans around to see it until all of a sudden it's this blazing inferno. And the idea was you don't keep sending signals back to the human analyst unless the temperature deviates from its nominal, you know, room temperature, if you will. So, so, the, so the smarts on the machine said, okay, I don't need to send information now. I don't need to send information now. I don't need to send information now, that kind of thing. And so the, so the sensor web technology was not just there. I mean, you think, of, so you think about a robotic uh, device of any kind, whether it's a robotic uh device that's you know, sort of micro level that's you know flowing through your blood to make some decision whether to break up a platelet in your blood or not, or whether it's a, a submersible in the ocean or whether it's an army robotic uh, unmanned vehicle or unmanned drone, it's making a decision to turn left, turn right, go up, go down, do something as a result of whatever data it's collecting in the sensor. So it's so all of those things, whether macroscopic or microscopically, uh, decision making at the point of data collection is critical. And like I tell people, for example, a self-driving car, same thing. So you have all these cameras on your car that's looking in front of you, to the side of you, and all around you, and all this stuff. And that's a lot of data. I mean, camera streaming video is big data, as we know. I, you know, I, you know, I just came home from on an airline trip, and they always say on those airlines, in the Wi-Fi, one of the rules is you don't do streaming video when you're on the airplane because they just don't have the bandwidth. So streaming video is a big data hog. So you can't like send all that data from your streaming video in your car, self-driving car, back to some cloud somewhere, wait 15 minutes to find out whether or not, oh, that was a person that was walking in front of you. You should have put the brakes on. Uh, well, it's a little too late 15 minutes later. You know, so you got to make that decision at the point of data collection of what the action is you need to take. So it these kinds of things are all around us. And, and the most exciting, unbelievable one I heard of recently was something called 4D printing. Have you ever heard of 4D printing? I haven't. Uh... Well, when I first saw it, I thought it was a misprint, right? 3D printing, right? We're all familiar with 3D printing. And there's actually a TED Talk on 4D printing. So, again, I encourage people to check it out. And you know, I might misdescribe it, but I'll try here. So 4D printing, the fourth dimension is time. So imagine like a carbon nanotube, a device, I mean, uh, a substance that can actually change its shape depending upon the sort of the electrical impulse or, or charge that's applied to different parts of it. So think of it almost like a piezoelectric crystal that when you apply a different current on this, across this node or that node or this diagonal or that side, it, it causes some current to flow. And in the carbon nanotube case, it causes it to change shape. Well, you can actually program a carbon nanotube to take a different kind of shape based upon the signal that comes in. So the example that the person described 
was, for example, a heart catheter. So a person has a heart catheter inserted in their in their major artery. You know, they keep the blood flowing uh, in case that you know they've had some platelet problems or you know bypass surgery or whatever the reasons are. And that catheter actually needs to, or a stent, let's say a stent even, that makes more sense to me, a stent, needs to change shape based upon your blood pressure, the stress, the blood flow, whatever. And so let's say you're in a stressful situation, all of a sudden your heart rate goes up, the blood pressure changes, your blood flow changes. That stent needs to behave differently. So there's a sensor in there that senses your stress level through the biometrics or whatever and causes that uh, stent to change shape through some kind of signal that's sent to it. So it's, so it's essentially printing out a new stent in real time from the data that's streaming from the sensor. So essentially printing, if, if that, I use that word lightly. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's creating an output, a shape that's dynamic in time based upon the input from the sensor. Now think about a digital twin in that environment. Sure. Where the, the, the streaming data says, I, I now need to take, like a windmill, I need, I now need to change the pitch yeah. of, of my blades on my windmill under these wind conditions and so, uh, or change the length of the blades. How do I change the length and the pitch and all that stuff of my blades in real time? Well, with a four, with 4D printing, you can. Now, okay, this sounds very <laughs> theoretical right now, but I think it's moving beyond theoretical. That's pretty impressive. So that's really at the edge. That's at the edge. At that point of data collection, you say you make a decision to change the shape of something. That's pretty incredible. I, I mean, that I, I did not know that either, and I've never heard that term, but it makes a lot of sense. And just for people listening, I am I did Google that while we're talking, uh, and it is real. Uh, I, I believe you, Kirk. I just uh, that sounds <laughs> very Star Trekky to me. Uh, so I just wanted to ensure that uh, you know it's well, yeah. Well, it does sound like a Star Trek replicator. For sure. Or, or Star Trek clothing or, uh, I, I mean, there's, uh, my mind is racing right now. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. So the silly little model I had in my head is, uh, I don't know if you ever watched the Harry Potter movies, but there's one movie where the uh, the bus has to, like, shrink in width because it's, it's going to try to squeeze yeah. between two other buses on the road. And so, in a sense, in real time, it changes shape to, to 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 fit through the space that it has to fit through, and then it goes back to its normal shape after you know that uh, you know, that narrow passage. That, that's yeah. I mean, the, there's a million different things, and I I think what you touched on about like for me, I, I think edge decision making is when you have some sort of mission critical system that needs to take some form of reaction whether it's life-saving or something even like the bus, I mean, um, or, you know, in the heart scenario or, you know, uh, you know, like an oil and gas scenario, with the, you know, we need to shut off something or in a manufacturing plant and you, you need a self-contained system where you want to be able to respond um, reliably 100% of the time. So you need that capability. But I think what you're taking is a step further beyond where it's not just alert and and respond but literally you could have a digital twin on the edge that takes action which 
Um, I was going to ask you, my next question was going to be, and my final kind of wrap up, I was going to ask you about sort of where you see the future of Digital Twin going, but I, I think you've taken us there quite nicely. Um, but beyond that, is there any other sort of, um, before I let you go, uh, any other sort of exciting things you see happening in the future with the Digital Twin? Well, if I could speculate, say 5D printing, but let's not do that. <laughs> Because <laughs> yeah. that would really be a fancy yeah. world at that point. Yeah, but that I, would blow think, my mind. Um, <laughs> but I think you really hit the nail on the head here in, in the sense that uh, the the decision at the edge, the edge analytics or the edge computing, again, it's, it's, it's really a mission-critical decision. I think that this goes back to, to sort of the first way you phrased the question, of, uh, what are the use cases, what are the applications where that's necessary? And I, and I think... It's almost like you know when you know, <laughs> right? You don't need to invent an excuse to have edge computing. You just know that I need to I need to make this decision as soon as I have collected the, the data from my sensor. I can't send it back to a cloud or some compute environment to 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 let me know what to do next, or let or let my bot know what to do next, or let my system know to know what to do next. It needs to be take that action in real time and, and or you know pseudo real time. I mean as fast as you. The, the electrons allow you to make it, basically. And so I think um, the future will be, I guess, we'll, we'll, we'll probably be, I mean, I'm, I'm just speculating. You know, I'm not a technologist in that sense, but but I, I certainly expect to see more of these kinds of technologies uh, in our day-to-day -day lives. I mean, again, I'm not sure of examples of that, but I can imagine, you know, things that, uh, that, that sense something is happening and, and then take some appropriate action. And so I think the smart Figure it as an example of that, where we're going to see more uh, activity around, uh, you know, sort of, uh, you know, sort of sustainability of our electricity supply and things like that being enabled, you know, by sort of real time dynamic uh, you know, repartitioning of the grid or whatever, and it's you know things like that which seem like it's so invisible. How would we even know that? But I mean, in terms of the long term sustainability of our energy system, I think it'll be a huge thing. Certainly manufacturing, I think we're going to see sort of a lot more stuff in this area. Uh, now that sort of people know that there's such a thing as 4D printing, you know, maybe you're going to start seeing more experimentation in that area where people are going to start trying things, uh, whether in the medical device field or, or mechanical devices. Um, so I, I'm, not, I'm not good at like, like futuristic thinking of some yeah. way out of the box thing that, that might happen. Like my lawnmower suddenly changes into a helicopter or something yeah. like that, but I think, but I think a sensor. I mean, okay, I'll take my lawnmower as an example. So I have I have a self-propelled lawnmower. That, that if a future lawnmower has some kind of sensor on it that detects I'm about to run over a rock because there's some kind of LiDAR, visual yeah. sensor right at the yeah lidar or something right off the front of the lawnmower just before I roll over it says oh you're about to roll over some obstacle that's going to destroy the blade of your lawnmower it does you know it takes some kind of action whatever it might be you know retract the blade a little bit or something in response to that so so sort of like you know sort of the trip hazards we have in our homes and in our day-to-day -day lives those kinds of things maybe sensors will start sort of helping us to navigate around those sort of uh, subconsciously virtually without even realizing <laughs> For sure. I don't know. Maybe things like this will happen. <laughs> well, the crazy thing is I don't think that that's that, you know, five, six years ago that would have sounded very futuristic. I, I don't think that that is 
even, I mean, in a weird way, that's not that futuristic of a use case right now. You know what I mean? It, it is and it isn't because there's, you know, compute challenges that need to be solved at scale, like putting the level of compute that you might have in a Tesla, for example, that can handle that similar use case today into a lawnmower that becomes affordable, something that you can buy at your house is where probably a lot of that challenge is. But the technology behind it, it the technical hurdle is not there as much as the technical hurdle of making it affordable probably is, don't you think? Yes. In fact, uh, as you were saying this, I'm, I'm thinking to myself that some of these technical hurdles have already been cap, uh, uh, catapulted over <laughs> uh, in the marketing world. I'm a big fan of digital marketing because to me it's a, it's a great metaphor for a lot of things, right? The customer journey is a good metaphor for like a, a patient journey or an employee journey or even a device product journey and that is you, you sort of get an idea of what the intentions and directions and motivations and interests are and how it's going to behave and what can you do for example in marketing you want to encourage a customer to purchase a product click on a link or something you know so what are the nudges you know what are the little incentives that are made apparent through data through sensors uh, that will allow a system to move to a, a more optimal outcome so in marketing, the optimal outcome is the customer buys your product or, or something like this, but the optimal outcome in medicine will be, you know, maybe, you know, some uh, medical, be proper medical behavior, uh, the proper response in a, in a device or a, or a manufacturing plant will be to maybe reduce the, the operating temperature or, or reduce the load on the system so that it doesn't burn out. So all these kinds of things, basically, so our real-time decision-making from data streams, I've seen the digital marketing people already sort of mastering that. Now, their data streams might be, relatively speaking, easy in the sense that it's, you know, web analytics as opposed to sensor, you know, you know a thousand sensors <laughs> on a device. I, mean, I think about, you know, jet engines and aircraft. Jet engines have, you know, producing, every single engine produces several terabytes per hour. I mean, it's just a ridiculous amount of data coming off just a single kind of thing, an, an engine. And there's hundreds of thousands of such engines around the world. And so somewhat calculated once there's like a, a Yoda byte of data or something generated every year just from aircraft engines. <laughs> and that's just one type of device in the world. So I think we're going to see sort of sharing of knowledge and, and solutions across domains, which is, since I since I'm permitted to do that in my job where I can sort of see what people are doing in maybe the marketing space and then in the health space and then in the, you know, in the national security space or in the uh, energy or transportation space, all of a sudden I think, well, gee, that, that sort of use case looks sort of like this one over here. Let's, let's see if we can just use some of the solutions that these other people are trying out. That, that's really interesting you mentioned that. I, I don't know if you know this, but my team's entire background is in digital marketing um, and sort of the solutions that we came up with, um, the challenges we were facing there pushed us into IoT. Um, so I, I think you're right on that nail on the head there because the scale of things that we were dealing with were a real problem for us, particularly in digital marketing, social media analysis. Um, and then as we encountered those challenges, we realized the next place that they were going to be a problem was in IoT. Um, so I appreciate you saying that because it makes me feel good about my decision because uh, I, I trust your judgment more than my own. Uh, so uh, no, you, yeah. well, I, I, well, I came to this conclusion by watching people like you. So, so I don't know if you know this, but if you follow my Twitter feed, occasionally I'll refer to the Internet of Things as the Internet of Context. 
And that's one of my firm beliefs is that the best insights and understanding of, of how to take a, the next best action or next best decision in any context, in any, I mean, any domain or vertical has to do with when you have enough contextual information to know what the right thing to do is. And so that contextual information in the modern world where you have sensors on everything and sensors include social media. I mean, social networks are a sensor, right? They're a sensor on the sentiment of the population, of the world, of the people, of your customer. You know, I think about, you know, Super Bowl commercials and those, those companies that spend $4 million for a 30 second spot on the Super Bowl. And they're, they're immediately, I'm sure I am no doubt immediately after those commercials aired, they're monitoring social media to see what the sentiment is. I mean, was their $4 million investment producing positive or negative sentiment for their brand? And so this uh, idea of um, getting context from whatever the sensors are, that that's enormous in marketing. But likewise, in any decision-making, it's not just... For example, and I always give the example of the stock market. I, I try to do a time series analysis on a particular stock in the stock market to predict whether it's going up or down, but that's completely useless because it's auto-regressive. That is to say, I only can sort of predict a future behavior based upon past patterns of behavior. However, if I look at how that stock responds to different market conditions or how a certain sector in the market is moving, maybe this moves down when the other one moves up, all that contextual information gives me far more insight than just the single stream of information from that single time series. So the context is critical. So I, I'm a I'm pushing for this idea of calling IoT now the Internet of Context. That's really interesting. I, I I have seen you refer to that before, but I don't think I appreciated what you meant by that until just now. Um, and so. Uh, I appreciate that explanation because it helps a lot. And I think that is true. And there are, I mean, from my personal experience, having worked heavily in both areas, there's an enormous overlap between social media behavior and modeling and the challenge, both at a technical level, at a business level, at a process level, and IoT. Um, And and it's very interesting because you are just trying to get context of what is happening and then respond to that context uh, in digital marketing, social media, as well as sort of IoT, digital twin. They're they're very similar, um, and and I, I I appreciate you seeing that, and it, it's it's very interesting to me um, that term because I I think that that is a great term, and I think it makes sense, and it because it's well beyond just things, right? There there are many digital things that have no physical entity that sort of feed into uh, the Internet of Things as well. So I, I like that term a lot. Um, and I, I think uh, maybe we can wrap up the podcast on, on that term. And um, are there any sort of further things you'd like to add before we wrap it up? I just want to say that Internet of Context is the IOC. So maybe the Internet International Olympic Committee might have argument with us. But I'm going for it. Yeah, maybe. And people might get confused with the ICO also and think we're talking about Bitcoin or uh, blockchain. Oh. Yeah, so. Uh, oh, yeah. You'll get a lot more followers then. Yeah, yeah. We, we have to figure out a way to switch that C and that O. Uh, and then we'll, 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 you and I will really be on to something there. Uh, but uh, thank you. So thank you for teaching us about the Internet of Context. I'm very happy to do something. <laughs>